I want to make, I want to start off with three introductory um, considerations. So first of all, slavery was a massive historical existence. Um, in Aristotle's time, in Plato's time, uh, in Greece in general, in the ancient Mediterranean um, more broadly, um, and throughout the world um, at the time and since. Uh, it's, it's really hard to overstate how important slavery, um, the enslavement of some by others has been uh, over the course of human history. Um, it, we have, in the modern world, we have largely um, only, <laughs> I would say in the last century or so, largely eliminated the practice of slavery, um, but, um, or at least largely illegitimated it. Um, but it, if you study the long swath of human history, you will encounter slavery in various forms and practices again and again and again. Which is to say that in a certain sense, I think slavery is just a massive social fact that Aristotle and Plato before him uh, largely took for granted um, and everybody around them took for granted. The real world practice of slavery, I think is best um, captured by um, the sociologist Orlando Patterson uh, who defined the real world practice of slavery um, as the permanent violent domination of natally alienated and generally dishonored persons. I'll break that down into th the three components. So slavery is a, a permanent violent domination. That is uh, slavery, it, to be enslaved was to be affected for your entire life. Um, and it was to be subject to a violent power um, that, um, I mean, that was, that was just intrinsic to the experience of, of being enslaved. Second, to be enslaved was to be natally alienated or an, another term that Patterson uses is to be socially dead. That is, it was to be um, ripped out of your community of birth um, and to have no right to kin um, or family or social connection. So, um, and this could happen in different ways. It might be that you would become a slave by being expelled from the community of which you were a part, which would then enslave you, but not recognize any of your ties to your family and so forth. Or it might be that you would be injected into a society. That is, you would be captured in war or through trade um, and brought into an alien society as a foreigner um, and not be allowed to establish any sort of family or kin connection. And third, it was to be generally dishonored. That is to not count for anything, to not have any sort of social standing or um, any sort of, um, uh, yeah, any honor, uh, any status. That is, uh, I mean, to be enslaved is about as horrific uh, an experience as any human being could um, have. Um, it's probably, um, yeah, it's, it's 
compared repeatedly throughout history to a sort of living death. Um, and I think that's a fair comparison. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction is that Aristotle in this account of slavery that he gives in uh, book one of the politics basically doesn't engage with that, doesn't engage with the actual practice of slavery. He doesn't engage with the actual practice of slavery in uh, the Greek society uh, in which he lived. He doesn't, uh, yeah, he doesn't talk about how slavery um, was practiced in Athens or in Macedonia or um, anywhere else in the ancient Mediterranean world. There are a few allusions to general practices, for example, capturing in war, um, using foreign populations as slaves. But fundamentally, Aristotle's account of slavery is not an, uh, an at all concerned with the empirical reality of um, not just of the slave's life, but of the, the sort of institution of slavery um, that was practiced in ancient Greece, um, which is a weird thing. Um, so what, what then is Aristotle's account of slavery about if it's not um, an engagement with the actual practice of slavery. Well, <clears throat> one, there are, there are two ways of thinking about this. On the one hand, there's a negative result of that. Aristotle's account of slavery is often referred to in literature and so forth as a defense of slavery. I don't think it's a defense of slavery um, in the sense that it's not a defense of the actual practice of slavery um, because it doesn't take any notice really of the actual practice of slavery. Um, rather, I think it's better to conceive of what Aristotle is doing here as constructing an ideology of slavery, by which I mean something particular. Um, and Ideology is a sort of normative theory, um, a normative theory that sort of constructs an, an ideal typical uh, form of slavery, one that doesn't exist in the real world, um, but rather exists only as a, as a sort of normative conceptual construction. That normative conceptual construction then, that ideology, can then be used by real people <laughs> wandering around in the world, both to defend slavery as an institutional practice, and, and indeed Aristotle's account of slavery has been used throughout history to defend um, practices of slavery. Um, certainly in the American South, it was probably the most cited, it and a few lines from the Bible were the most cited um, sort of uh, um, bits of text in the history of um, you know, literature and philosophy as substantiations of um, the right to own slaves. 
but it can also be deployed as a criticism of practices of slavery um, because it is otherworldly, it is ideal. Um, and this sort of ideal typical reconstruction of slavery, of, of a sort of normative slavery can be used to criticize actual practices to say, look, this is not um, the slavery that Aristotle theorized as natural slavery. This is a form, of, this is a degenerate form. This is, this is a wrong practice. We're not doing it right here. I'll come back to that in a little while. But what I wanna say is that um, basically, rather than engaging with the actual practices of slavery and trying to figure and trying to carry out a sort of sociological or political scientific um, explanation of what those practices are and how they work. Aristotle reflects on a certain con concept of slavery, um, which is at a remove from actual practices of slavery. And that um, con conceptual construction is bivalent. It can be used either to defend or to criticize actual practices. Okay. Um, and I think that'll become clearer um, as we go through. So Aristotle's account actually begins at the very end of chapter three. And it begins the way a lot of Aristotle's um, I don't know, a lot of his arguments throughout the book are going to begin this way. Begins by noticing and highlighting an existing controversy. Um, this is right at the end of book th uh, chapter three, it's 1253b, 18 through 23. And the controversy takes this form. On the one hand, there are people who say that despotike, the mastery of, of slaves, is a form of knowledge and that it is indeed the same knowledge as oikonomike, politike, and basilike. That is, knowing how to be a master is, a, is knowing how to rule over others. And that's the same as, you know, to, to learn how to be a good master is also to be, learn how to be a good king and to learn how to be a good household manager. But on the other hand, there are others who say that no, despotike is not a form of knowledge, but rather it's merely by convention and by force, by, um, and it's contrary to both justice and to nature. These are the, these are the existing positions um, that are out there. And this is the controversy that Aristotle wants to intervene in. Um, and he's going to end up taking, a, um, he's going to end up, and this is also characteristic of Aristotle, he's going to end up disagreeing with both parties in the existing um, disagreement, right? Uh, he's going to say that neither is despotike the same as uh, politike and basilike and so forth. It's not a knowledge, it's not a, it's not a knowledge of that sort. But he's also going to say it's not near, it's not simply contrary to justice um, or and to nature either. So in chapter four, then he begins his intervention not by looking around at the practice of mastery, 
um, and not directly by tackling the two questions that are raised by the, the contending parties in this dispute, but rather by trying to define the slave. Um, he defines the slave, and this is, this is purely an, a sort of ideal typical conception of the slave. What is a slave? He says, well, a slave is an ensouled tool for living. Um, that is, uh, a, a slave is someone who helps the master to live in the same way that a saw would help a, um, a carpenter to build a table. Um, a, it's a, an ensouled tool for living. If there are slaves by nature, he says, then that would be one, a, a, a slave by nature would be someone who, although they are human, they belong by nature, not to themselves, but to another. And in fact, he goes so far as to say that they would be like the part a part of another. They would be like a hand, right? So a hand, you know, cut off from the rest of the body, that to which it belongs, ceases to be a hand, right? It just becomes a dead lump of flesh. Now, cut off from his or her master, a slave ceases to be what exactly? Well, obviously a slave, but that's not helpful. Right? <laughs> that would be true of a slave, whether they were by nature or by uh, violence. A person? Well, no, it's not, it's not true either. A, a, a slave is a human being, even if they are not, um, if, even if they are cut away off from their master. Rather, Aristotle draws an example, uh, draws a comparison to tame animals. Says that um, like tame animals, um, slaves are as well off as they could be by being mastered. So in other words, a slave by nature is someone who is better off as a slave then they are free. Um, this Aristotle takes to be, I think, an uncontroversial point of definition. This is merely a bit of conceptual analysis. Regardless of whether you think slavery is justified or not justified, regardless of whether you think it's by nature or not by nature, he thinks that you will have to agree with this definition of the slave. Um, sorry, there was some noise in the background there. I was trying to figure out what was going on. Um, okay. Um, so that's what I mean. Like this is, this is just a conceptual construction. Um, and it's a conceptual construction based on how people use the word slave, right? Um, it's sort of, like, well, what, what, might, what, can, what do people mean when they call someone a slave? Um, and this is what 
he thinks they mean. They mean that this is an ensouled tool um, that is better off um, being a slave than being free. Only, uh, sorry, we have a question in the chat, just one second. Um, so the question is, you know, so a slave without a master is a slave without a purpose. Uh, that is no point in living. Um, some, maybe not no point in living, but a slave without a master is, uh, we'll come back to this a little bit further on, is according to Aristotle, incomplete, right? Um, not able to live um, as well as they would have been able to live if they had a master. So they um, not, so it, I think it's, it would be misleading to say without a purpose, uh, only because it seems to kind of beg the question, right? Um, the, the, the purpose that a slave has is whatever purpose the master imposes on the slave. Um, so, um, but, but so Aristotle wants to say something that is, oh, I think, a little bit more, um, a little stronger than uh, without a purpose, wants to say that from the slave's own perspective, um, a slave is someone who would be better off um, with a master, right? Um, so, and he, and he thinks this is uncontroversial, right? The, this is something that all parties can agree on. It's only after he's established this conceptual definition of what a slave is, of what we mean when we call someone a slave, that he turns in the next chapter, in chapter five, to the question of whether slaves by nature exist or not, right? Um, and he thinks that it's obvious that there are such slaves by nature, um, that there are people who, in his own phrase, stand as far removed from other people, from good people, as does the body from the soul or beasts from human beings. But there are two difficulties here. Um, so he's, he's defined slavery and he said, look, it's obvious that there are natural, there are slaves by nature. There are people who though born human um, are, are better off um, having a master, are better off being basically better off being part of someone else than being um, themselves independent. Um, it's obvious that this is true, he thinks. But there are two difficulties. Um, first of all, um, the difference between slaves by nature and uh, masters by nature is a difference in the soul. That is, it's an ethical difference. It's not a physical difference, right? Hence, it's not, it's not observable um, externally in a straightforward way. Um, therefore, it's difficult to discern empirically whether someone is a slave by nature 
or a master by nature. Second, um, slaves by nature are still human beings and hence they still partake in, uh, they share in all of the defining characteristics of a human being. That is they have logos, they have reason or speech, but they, Aristotle tries to, to finesse this by saying they have speech, but only to the extent of perceiving it, but not of being able to deliberate. That is, um, they're not able to direct their own lives deliberately. Um, that's, that's supposed to be the, the defining characteristic of a slave. They have speech, um, they have reason in the sense of they're able to uh, understand um, arguments, but they are not able to direct their own lives according to arguments. Someone else has to direct their life for them. This brings us to chapter six. Um, so, so we've gotten three. So he said, look, there, this is what slavery is. Slaves by nature exist. Um, now the question is, well, okay, but it's also true that, and this is about as close as he gets to acknowledging the institutional reality of slavery. It's also true that slavery by force uh, and by law exists. That is also true. Um, and according to, by law, you know, whatever is conquered in war belongs to the conqueror. But Aristotle claims that, and, and this is sort of the way he deals with this argument. He says, well, no one thinks this of themselves. That is, no one thinks that if they are conquered in war, they are thereby um, a natural slave. Right? Nobody thinks they deserve to be enslaved by foreign conquerors. And moreover, everyone agrees that it would be wrong for the virtuous to be enslaved. And so as a consequence, you can draw the conclusion that slavery by force and over the undeserving is disadvantageous to both master and slave. This is why his, um, his uh, sort of normative reconstruction can be used for critical purposes, right? <laughs> because he articulates both criteria by which slavery is right and natural and criteria by which it is according to force and unnatural and unjust. And then it becomes an argument over cases, right? Is this a case of natural slavery or is this a case of unjust, unnatural slavery? He hasn't yet given us um, the means of uh, deciding those questions. All he's done is he's defined this conceptual difference. Um, and 
said that there are both cases of natural slavery and there are cases of unjust, unnatural slavery. Finally, in chapter seven, he turns to mastery itself. And he says in chapter seven, argues in chapter seven that First of all, that mastery is not the same as is, is not the same as politike, right? It is not um, the knowledge or art of political rule, because politike, and this is at twelve fifty five B twenty, politike is rule over free and equal persons. By definition, mastery is not that. Second, he then, he doesn't just differentiate the two, he subordinates them, right? He sort of denigrates mastery in comparison to politike because he says, knowing, this is 1255b33, says knowing how to use slaves has nothing great or profound about it. Despotike is a minor knowledge, right? It's nothing, it's nothing great or profound. Okay, so that's sort of just the course of the argument. So now I wanna step back from what Aristotle says and I wanna say, well, what's, what, are, what lessons can we draw from all of this? First of all, and this is sort of reiterating something I've said already, Aristotle's argument is largely formal and conceptual. If despotike is to be natural and just, it would have to be rule over those who are benefited by such a rule, um, those who lack the ability to live their own lives. And it would have to benefit both the, it would also have to benefit the master by allowing him to live his own life well. Right. And then second, the mere fact of conquest is no title to mastery to despotism. Right? And he thinks that every, he can get everyone on board with that also. And what that means is that I don't think Aristotle commits himself to any empirical claim about how many natural slaves there are out there in the world. Um, and nor does he lay out here any criteria for recognizing them. That's going to change. Um, in book seven, he is going to provide um, a criteria for recognizing natural slaves, um, but we're not there yet. Um, and I think the reason he, but I think the reason he doesn't do that here um, is because he's, Aristotle's fundamentally not concerned with enslaved people, certainly not here. Rather, he's concerned with the masters, right? That's, that's, who he, that's who he's interested in. And he's making a couple arguments about the masters. On the one hand, he's demoting despotike, right? It's nothing great. It requires very little knowledge. Um, basically, being master of slaves is either illegitimate because it's violent or it's pretty boring because you're ruling over natural slaves. Um, and, you know, ruling over natural slaves is like, uh, 
it's like ruling over tame animals, right? You don't, not something to take great pride in. It's uh, something like that. But he's also underscoring it's not, ir not quite irrelevance for, uh, but it's difference from politics. And the important point here is that not only is being a master different from exercising political rule, but being a master teaches you nothing about political rule. It doesn't teach you anything about ruling over free and equal persons. It makes politics possible in a certain way, right? Because this is how slavery benefits the master. The slavery benefits the master by um, the, the slave, the, the slave as an ensouled tool helps the master with household stuff so that the master doesn't have to pay attention to that stuff and is free from those concerns so that the master can go out into the city and participate um, in politics. The um, slave, the enslaved person is basically a prop it props up political life, the political life of the master. And I think the point of this is that this is, this is a sort of internal criticism of Plato, or at least of a particular reading of Plato, right? There's an important sense in which Plato agrees with Callicles, um, that is, Plato agrees that natural justice is the rule of the stronger and more intelligent over the weaker and less intelligent. It's the rule of mind over body and the rule of those in whom mind predominates over those in whom body predominates. Aristotle says, okay, that's fine. I kind of agree with all of that, but this actually tells us nothing about politics. Because in politics, in the life of the city, we have to figure out how to rule over and be ruled by free and equal people. Where the divide between mind and body, master and slave, runs across and through each of us. It doesn't divide some of us off from the others, right? That is, all of us as human beings um, have slavish parts and, and, masterous, and masterful parts, right? Um, and um, our struggle to live our own lives well is to subordinate our servile nature to our masterful nature. And in our interactions with others who are like us, um, we have to engage with one another as it were master to master, not master to slave. Right? And so Aristotle, or Plato's um, sort of schema of rule doesn't tell us anything about those master to master relations, but that's, that's what politics is. Right. So this 
retrospectively matters. So if you look back then at chapter two of book one, Aristotle says there that the city exists for the sake of living well. And that's gonna be his, that's gonna be one of the things that he's gonna re repeat a hundred times. Um, and he goes on to say, basically the city is the community of beings who can perceive good and bad, just and unjust, and not, it's not just the community of people who can perceive those things and order their lives according to them, but it's also the only community in which we can figure out what good and bad, just and unjust are. That's what it means to say that the city exists for the sake of living well. The city exists so that we can together figure out what justice and injustice are, what good and bad are, and order our lives collectively according to those things. And what that means is there's a certain sort of intelligence that can only come about in a community of free and equal people. And so for Aristotle, slavery by nature is a social relation like like all of the relationships within the family. These are social relations that make possible this community of free and equal people who can figure out what justice and injustice, good and bad are. Um, they make possible that community, but they are not part of that community, right? So, I mean, and this just, in some sense, this underscores how different Aristotle's conception of slavery is from the practice of slavery in the Greek world. Because for Aristotle, the slavery is a purely domestic um, relationship, right? The relationship between master and slave is a completely domestic, private one. It's one that takes place within the family. Um, basically, the, the master is the head of the family and the master, the slaves, the children, the wife, these are all parts of the family of which the, the master is the head, right? And the actual practice of slavery in Athens and in Greece involved public slaves, um, it involved slaves engaged in like large scale agriculture and mining. It, in, it involved like the, the helots in, in Sparta who were you know, slaves of the city as a whole. And all of those sorts of those things disappear from Aristotle's account, right? He's not like, that's not interesting to him <laughs> or at least not here because those practices and institutions don't help bring about this community of free and equal people. Um, only domestic slavery, domestic servitude, in which the, the, the slave frees the master to go out into the city. Um, only that supports this community of free and equal people. And we can go, we can 
go even further. If, if that community of free and equal people is what allows for the discovery of what justice is, what injustice is, what good is, what bad is, it basically, the politics um, makes possible something like a common mind. That is a public logos, a public discourse um, that makes possible living well in a way that solitary existence never could. And early on, I mean, this is also in chapter two, Aristotle says there, uh, this is 1253 A 27 through 29. He says that if you lack the power to be in an association like this, then you are less than human. Um, or not, you know, you're not really fully human. And if you don't need an association like this, then that means you're more divine than human. That is, if you could live a good life all by yourself, that would mean you were more than human, right? You would be a sort of demigod, right? Um, if you can't live a good life, even in community with others, if you're incapable of partaking in the city, then you're less than fully human. Um, and so, it is these domestic relationships, the relationships within the family that make it possible for those who are capable of being fully human to go out and actually become fully human in the city. So that's, that's what slavery, uh, that's what marriage, and that's what procreation allows. These are relation domestic relationships that support and make possible um, the the full development of a few human beings right the human beings who can um, um, partake in politique with one another okay. now uh, that's the end of the looking back. I'm just going to look forward for one second, which is to say um, in, in book two, Aristotle's going to say, uh, this is at 1263A15. Uh, he says, uh, living together and sharing things is difficult in all human circumstances. So that's basically going to be the problem for the rest of the book, right? So book, book one has established these pre-political domestic relationships that make possible political community, sharing in political life. And then the rest of the book is, the rest of the politics is going to be about the difficulty of living together and sharing things as political, as free and equal beings um, and, and how we might be able to do that. Um, I think there are, I mean, there are, I want to say something about the modern context. So there are real questions on the basis of what I've just said. I think there are real questions about how 
relevant or how to make sense of Aristotle's um, concerns and his arguments in a world in which we don't have households, we don't have domestic spheres like um, he um, assumes, right? That is, we don't have a bunch of pre-political relationships that make it possible for and support um, the construction of purely political relationships. Um, what, so I think there's a, there's a striking uh, example of this. So one of the things that Aristotle takes to be definitive of servility or slavishness, right? And hence uh, to be definitive of not only natural slaves, but of those who, and we'll come back to this, that there, there are gonna be whole classes of people who are, uh, who exist in the, in the city who um, don't even have it as good as slaves in the sense that they are servile or slavish, but don't have masters, right? Um, and therefore don't benefit from the relationship with a master. Um, and we've, we've encountered this in Plato too, the, the, the sort of big category of these servile people, slaves without masters, are the vulgar crafts people, right? Um, and what Aristotle says about the vulgar craftspeople, and this is also what um, Plato or Socrates said in, in book nine, um, says basically that um, if they organize their life around satisfying the needs of other people, right? Satisfying the ends that other people have rather than around um, sort of positing their own ends, right? Because um, they, the way they make their living is by satisfying customers, right? So hence, it's the customer, you know, we say the customer is always right, right? So the customer is the measure of their life. Uh, the customer's desires are the measure of their life rather than an independent decision about what is the right thing to do. In the modern world, we actually have like, we, so there's a famous passage from Adam Smith that actually defends that position as independence and freedom, right? So in uh, The Wealth of Nations, Smith says this famous thing, right? It's not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner but from their regard to their own self-interest. We address ourselves not to their humanity, but to their self-love. And we never talk to them of our own necessities, but of their advantages. So the lesson that Smith is drawing from all of this is that um, for him, um, relying, having, relying upon the benevolence of others is a sort of dependency that is 
servile, right? Appealing to others' um, self-love, to their self-interest, is what makes it possible for us to interact with them as equals. And that is just, yeah, that's like Aristotle on his head, right? Aristotle would see people appealing to one another's self-interest precisely as people acting slavishly and asking others to do the same. I think that signals the, the distance between Aristotle's world and Aristotle's presuppositions um, and maybe our own. We have a tendency to think of sort of arm's length market uh, interactions as precisely the interactions between free and equal persons. Aristotle saw market interactions as the interactions between servile people and people who may or may not have been sort of in command of their own needs. Um, and for that reason, the, the supplier of goods for the market is for Aristotle fundamentally a servile person, um, someone who can never be a free and equal participant um, in political life with um, the person who has a, a household that supports their independent um, existence and their independent participation um, in political life. These are just radically divergent conceptions of what it means for free and equal people to um, interact. One sees free and equal people interacting in the market one sees free and equal um, people interacting only through um, being part of a community of argumentation, right? Uh, of discussion about and common deliberation about what to do. And, and that's, that's just gonna be a whole different world. So that's just my way of, of underscoring sort of the difference between it. So the, the difference between Aristotle and us is not just that Aristotle takes slavery for granted and we don't, but that Aristotle sees slavery precise or slavishness at least precisely where we see freedom. <laughs>